Welcome. You're listening to Living Faith Podcast. Starry skies, see your hand in time, and mine to lead me through the night. I'll do a little short review of last week just to remind and refresh, but I can't give an in-depth review. So for better understanding, go online and view the entire message. Exodus 23, let's start there. Exodus 23 and verse 14. This to his people, three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat Unleavened bread seven days as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt, none shall appear before me empty. That month of Abib is right around the time we celebrate Easter, so it can be March or April. Verse 16, and the feast of harvest, the first fruit in the field. That feast would take place seven weeks later than the first feast and so you're looking at may or june when that the feast of ingathering at the end of the year everyone say end of the year when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field uh, when all the crops all the harvest the time of all different plants have come to maturity and the fields are cleared. That's each year God's people were called. They had to gather together. They were acknowledged the Lord for specific things at specific times. In the spring, early spring of every year, they were to be reminded that God delivered them from Egypt. That God got them out of a horrendous and trying and intense situation for which they could not leave on their own. It was a miracle of God. He delivered them. In May and June, the acknowledgement in the first fruits or the Feast of Harvest or Pentecost was recognition that the land that I'm farming and the fields that I'm working only mine because God provided them. This is the land of Canaan. This is the area of God's inheritance. Not only did he deliver me, but he has given me this opportunity. He has placed me in this new land. Furthermore, it's the craziest of and I plant them in the ground. Somehow, some way, the rainy season comes and the sun shines down and, and those little seeds bring forth fruit and harvest and wheat and rye and barley and, and there is a harvest that comes forth. It is an act of God. And so in May or June, the very first fruits, they would return a portion, just a portion, just a, just a small amount. Return that to the Lord in acknowledgement. I recognize this is because of you. And then at the end of the year, when they had gathered everything in, at the end of the year, they realized, wow, look what God has done. Just a big old party and celebration and recognition. Look what he the, the, the progression of these things is what I highlighted last week and what I will revisit today and in the weeks to come. God's 
people were regularly engaging themselves in this memorable physical practice of remembering the cycle of the Lord's blessing. There's deliverance, there's inheritance, and there is divine blessing or ingathering at the end. Inheritance and divine blessing. Uh, the feast reminded Israel, you know what? Appreciate where you are today. Appreciate what you enjoy today. But at, at the core, you've got to remember, you've been involved in this, but you're not responsible for this. You're a participant in what God is doing, but you're not the originators of His divine work. We're involved, but we are not the Creator. That, that first feast, that unleavened bread, memorialized that exodus from Egypt. Of course, that's the beginning of life in God's promised land. There's new land. There's new leadership. There's a new kingdom. There's new blessings. Things operate differently here. And so likewise, all of us who would desire the blessings and the promises that I am addressing in this series, you and I must also receive the Lord's deliverance from Egypt or mere humanity into Canaan, the Lord's spiritual promise. To, to live in Christ's divine blessing, the outcome, the end of the year, we receive His salvation. And, and how do we receive that salvation? Well, first thing we do is we turn from faulty natural attitudes and actions. We, we turn from those errors and we turn toward Christ our Savior. We determine, I, I'm going to have a new leader now and a new one who sets direction. Progressing in that choice, we are then baptized in the name of that new leader, in the name of Jesus Christ, taking on his name as the director of our lives and simultaneously erasing every personal error that is associated with mere human living. And in the same regard, in this, this new spiritual Canaan, we experience what Jesus termed as this, the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. Supernaturally, we receive a portion of God's Spirit in us, the portion of our inheritance. It's a, 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 there's going to be a day. At the end of time, when the ultimate ingathering and presence of God forever and in eternity, and there's no hindrance and no distraction and no confusion, but solely and purely the divine power of God. Until then, He has given us in this spiritual land a portion of His power and a portion of His glory to, to dwell within us. It divinely connects us to the spiritual land of Canaan as he leads and guides us to all truth. And you're listening today, here, or online, or in another day when viewed. If you're not yet excited, if you not yet have 
exited Egypt, if you've not yet stepped away from the mistakes of mere humanity and experienced the spiritual landmarks that I've just addressed, boy, I encourage you, do so as soon as possible. It is his desire that all would exit that ordinary living and be welcomed into the spiritual land of Canaan. It's something God wants to do in every life in you. Now, now this series, First Things, this series emphasizes, I'm really capitalizing on that, that middle feast. You got the Feast of Unleavened Bread at the beginning. You got the Feast of Ingathering at the end. But in the middle is that Feast of First Fruits. Just as good things start happening. Just as the benefits begin. This is a, a new progression in this new land. Sometimes we can be tempted. There are those who, uh, unawares or perhaps without insight, have decided, you know, I like the exodus. I like to leave things behind that have hindered and harmed. And, and I like the idea of heaven and eternity with my Savior. I like the end gathering. But what happens in between? What goes on in the middle of God's work? It's that feast of first fruits. It's that new progression. In, the, in Canaan, it works differently. In Egypt, it wasn't that way. But in Canaan, it's different. In God's land, in God's blessing, there's this feast right in the middle of what's happening. It's, it's faith first. It's faith forward. It's trusting God for what comes next and what's ahead. And so in this area, we return a portion of the harvest, the first share, the best portion. In regard to that portion, this was a call to all of Israel, to all the children of God, to all who were delivered and living in Canaan's inheritance. In Exodus 23 and 19, the scripture records this. As you harvest your crops, bring the very best of the first harvest to the house of the Lord your God. Bring the very best. To everyone, he was speaking that the expectation of the festival is the same. Serve the work of God in portion. And that portion is to be our best, the very best, priority and quality. There's a psychologist by the name of Roy Baumeister. And he writes about another therapist who noticed that dual career couples tend to fight over trivial issues every evening. So here's what the therapist advised. You should go home earlier for more time to fight. Didn't, didn't seem like that makes much sense. You need to go home earlier. But here's the thing. It was the long hours. 
hours at work that was draining them. So when they got home, they had nothing left to help them overlook their spouse's annoying habits. And they were more likely to interpret a spouse's comment in a negative light because they had no energy left for the relationship. They gave it all at the office. Now here's what I wonder. I wonder how much that happens among disciples. That we give so much of our energies to ordinary things that there are only remains for the things of God. When I, I remember that Jesus gave his life for me, does it seem honorable that I would give to him the, the remains of the day, if you will? As we're unworthy recipients of our Lord's deliverance, his inheritance, his provision, all of that isn't because we earned it. He just decided he wanted to do that for us. And then, it, does it make sense to give him our best portion? That seems like a little bit to ask. Just give him the first and the best. And, and we realize everything we've received, you know what? It's easy to see what Solomon was talking about. In Proverbs 3, Proverbs 3, 9, Solomon said, Honor the Lord with your possessions, with the first fruits of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will fall, overflow with new wine. Solomon was a Canaan guy. Solomon was never raised in Egypt. Solomon spent his whole life in Canaan. So all of his lifetime... He celebrated unleavened bread. God delivered us. And in the middle, he celebrated first fruits. And in the end, he celebrated in gathering. And so it caused Solomon to write that here in the middle, this is what we do in Canaan. We honor God. We give him the first fruits of all our... Uh, that first portion in, in priority and in quality we give to him. Why? Because I know... There is a day coming of ingathering where he will bless harvest and he will multiply and there is a divine work of his hands. And in Canaan, first things precede in gathering. Now, as we discussed in last week's session, again, if you missed it, go get the details. But Solomon there, indeed, he was talking about possessions or what we would recognize as financial increase. And that'll be a, a portion of one message of this series. But there are many ways that we increase as we develop being God's blessed beings. Of Jesus himself, Luke 2.52. Look at this. This is what we find of Jesus himself. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. In favor with men. That's a topic for this week. Increased socially. Increased 
socially. In Jesus' lifetime, in his human development, he learned how to better get along with people. He developed his relational skills. As those who are here often or listen to a message now and then, you're, you're aware that my wife and I are fairly recent grandparents. And uh, boy, our lives are amazing. As we watch Seeley grow, my wife and I have talked about this many times, we're revisiting the social development that we witnessed in our daughters years ago. Now, early on, when the baby's crying, we pick her up to console her. But as she develops, she learns to reach toward us. She sees what's coming. There's interaction there. And then she began reacting to us with her movements and her facial gestures, a little laughter and crying. I, we got a little video when Brad first got his baby to laugh. And you can hear him saying, oh my word, she's laughing. <laughs> At first interaction. And then Celie discovered she could cause us to react. And she figured out she can make faces at us and she can get us to laugh and respond in return. Now words have arrived and on occasion she puts a couple together to make phrases. There's another level of social development. It's only just begun. And as she matures, she'll learn how it's best to play with others and how to work with others and developing her communication, her social increase. A lot of heads nodding around the room. We know exactly what I'm talking about. But what about us? What about you and me? Can our vocabularies still expand? Can our social awareness improve? Can we get better at meeting people, connecting to people, relating with people? I mean, if we know this happens naturally in developing children, why, why should it stop in adulthood? I told you it'd be challenging. You know, I appreciate the, the modern study of personality types. I remember... Uh, in college, uh, one of the early years, I was required to take a psychology and sociology class, and I thought it was the dumbest thing. I was studying to be an engineer. And then I pledged to prepare to be a preacher, and guess what? So sociology and psychology classes. And I'm like, what are these people doing? I need to know the word. <laughs> Boy, and they helped me with that, but you know what? Since that time, I am a student of people. My wife and I have taken multiple personality and temperament evaluations. A few years ago, right back in the commons, we had some trainers share the colors personality concept with all of us as a team. And, and I'm predominantly green. My wife is predominantly blue. We gleaned from that. 
a pastor's wife, friends of ours, said, you know what, I read an insightful book. It's called The Road Back to You, and I read that, and it's talking about the Enneagram and its observations and applications, nine different kind of personality types. I learned from that. I read a book called The Strengths Finder 2.0, more of a business concept, and I took their tests to evaluate my strengths and recommended responses. Furthermore, my wife and I probably most recently have learned most about our temperament through Daystar Ministries and Dr. Daniel Surstad, who is partner, we partner with in this church. He's got this temperament analysis, and it's followed by sessions that my wife and I had to help us understand ourselves and one another. Again, why, why so much study and evaluation of those things? Because my life revolves around people. And in all of these frameworks that I'm looking at, I'm to learn more about people and to understand people and understand myself. And I'm going to share the gospel that is able to change every life for eternity. I want to understand the life I'm talking to. In all those frameworks and all of those situations, when I was a kid, it was a Myers-Briggs type indicator. I've taken a bunch of them. Some of you are thinking right now, pastor is a piece of work. <laughs> you know what I've noticed in all one of them? Every one of them then says, well, if this is where you fit in, in our explanation, if this is where you fit, then here's what you should do to manage best your interactions with others. Here's what you should do to be successful in the workplace or at school. Here's what you should do to benefit your marriage or, or navigate challenges and be most successful. Every one of them includes that help and that direction. Here, here's what I have yet to find. An evaluation, when you get to the end of the chapter, it says, well, if this description fits you, uh, tough luck. <laughs> no hope for you. You can stop reading now, close the book, it's over. I have never seen that. I have never recognized. Are there different challenges and appeals to different people? Absolutely. But they're all giving us hope for what we can do. And, and you know what? If it can happen from those human perspectives, there is hope, then surely you and I can appreciate there is hope for every one of us in the kingdom of God. That there is social growth and increase for every one of us. I remind us today that personality and temperament, that's a modern study. Those explanations were non-existent during the writing of Scripture, which might make us wonder, well, does God understand all of that? Uh, of course he does. He's the creator. Look what the psalmist recognized in Psalm 139. Psalm 139 and verse 1. Oh, Lord, you've examined my and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me. You place your hand 
of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. Jumping down to verse 13. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Verse 14, thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion. I was woven together in the dark of the womb. Our great creator is uniquely aware of human complexity. Think about it. Same God interacted with Cain and with Abel. Same God understood David and Solomon. Nick opened the service. You read the Psalms. David's like this, up and down. You read the Proverbs. Solomon's like, it's all thought. Everything's thought. There's no emotions. It's all thought. The Lord dealt with them both. Understood them. He dealt with Peter, the hothead, and John, the loving disciple. He was friends with Mary, the worshiper, and Martha, the worker. Are you with me? He had that understanding, and as such, you and I have got to ask, does the Lord make exception in his instruction for different temperaments? So he, did he talk to the household of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus and say, listen, there's ten commandments for you, and ten different ones for you, and another ten for you based on your particularity type. No, for the chatty extrovert, the Lord doesn't exempt them from controlling their words. For the one who likes to tell great big old fishing stories, the Lord doesn't exempt them from honesty and truth. And for the reflective thinker, the Lord doesn't exempt them from social engagement in the kingdom. I'm not aware, now you may know the scripture better than me, but I'm not aware of any footnotes in scripture exempting anyone based upon their temperamental leanings. I value and work to apply what I learn about these various measures of temperament and personality. But here's what I believe. If Noah and Moses and Miriam and Rebecca and John and Peter and Lydia and others were expected to increase in the kingdom regardless of their personalities. And then I believe that you and I are as well. Social increase. Why does that even matter? I find it very interesting that little verse, Luke 2.52, highlights the developmental process of what was going on in Jesus when he was 12 years old. I don't believe it's accidental. Why does social increase matter? I read an article not long ago from Inc. Magazine, Business Magazine. The article says this, for years, the Surgeon General's been warning that America is in the midst of a loneliness epidemic. 
And the forced physical separation of the pandemic certainly hasn't helped. Surveys show that Americans lost friends because of shutdowns and restrictions. For many people, the pandemic has just been lonely. Then the author asks this question. What are your prospects for growing your circle of friendships again on the other side of the pandemic? She writes, if you get the sense that it's harder to make friends as an adult than it was when you were younger, you're on to something. The difficulty isn't that you're uncool or awkward. It's that the essential building blocks of friendship are harder to come by as we age. According to the University of Maryland psychologist Marissa Franco, she says this, sociologists have kind of identified the ingredients that need to be in place for us to make friends, and they are. Continuous, unplanned interaction and shared vulnerability. Continuous, unplanned interaction Shared vulnerability. As we become adults, we've got less, fewer, and fewer environments where those ingredients are at play. And so even adults with all kind of other responsibilities, we've got less time to be available for this interaction and shared vulnerability. Here's what research shows. Get a load of this. It takes 50 hours to make a new casual friend. It takes 200 hours to develop a close friendship. Now, Franco insists that while making friends later in life doesn't happen like it did during our school days, it doesn't mean it's impossible. The key, she says, is not to rely on chance. Instead, organize regularly scheduled group activities. Activities. Like a book club, a rotating potluck, a bi-weekly hike. And then in parentheses it says this, Strangely, singing together has been significantly shown to be a particularly effective way to cement friendships. How about that? But here's what the secular world has recognized and grasped, and I hope you'll stay with me to see the, the spiritual implication. Friendships aren't just a nice extra in our lives. Friends are a potent mood booster and stress buster. Loneliness, on the other hand, can be as bad for your body as smoking a pack a day. Friends help us stay resilient, open-minded, and effectively smarter as we age. Humans need connection. Turn to somebody near you and just tell them, humans need connection. Go ahead. Chat it up. Humans need connection. I'm trying to get you to connect right now. Look to someone and say, humans need connection. Social increase matters. Social increase also matters because disciples need 
spiritual connections. I think about that article and that evaluation and I wonder, what about us? Have we felt alone? Have we felt unsupported in our godly pursuits? Have we found we've got little energy for godly people? Has our social increase stagnated? Is there little or no growth there? And how do my spiritual connections compare to, to other connections? You see, the mere geography of living in Canaan, when we look at the Exodus, they were living in Egypt and they physically left that place behind. And then they went to a brand new land and they're in Canaan. And that geography change makes it obvious that God's people socialized in Canaan with God's people as a primary effort. New Testament disciples, our Egyptian-Canaan separation is spiritual rather than geographical. In the New Testament, it confesses as much. It realizes, it helps us to know disciples are in this world, but not of this world. We're strangers and foreigners here. And there's no New Testament basis for disciples living without connection to our communities and the people all around us. We aren't directed by the Lord and by our scriptures to seclude ourselves to a commune in the woods. Though it, it can be real easy to seclude ourselves to the comfortable community in these four walls. Is that biblical? Is that what Jesus expects as we're in this divine developmental progress? On the contrary, Jesus was, various, was very connected to various communities. He, he wasn't scared of no one. He had food with everybody. He chatted folks up in all kinds of situations. We also need to notice he was most connected to disciples. His social first fruits, his priority and quality was devoted to followers. He didn't ignore everybody else, but his first fruits went to the devoted followers. We've got social connections with this wide variety of people. We know folks that are ignorant of Christ and those knowledgeable of him. Those who desire Christ and those who are combative toward him. So how do we manage these various connections in our lives? I believe first fruits and that concept can help us. With any, any experience in social groups, first time you start connecting with people, we begin to realize there are some folks who leave groups because no one there cares about me. It's been happening since the beginning of social groups of all kinds. And you know, if we don't take our children to visit their grandparents, would we expect them to have blessed relationships? 
If we didn't send our children to school, is it the teacher's lack or the other student's error that our, our children don't have good relationships at the school? And likewise, sometimes there are followers of Christ that mistakenly expect there ought to be an in-gathering kind of blessing in my life. I have exited Egypt, and I need to have in-gathering blessings, but we're not recognizing our responsibility in the first fruits. The geography of living in Canaan makes it obvious that God's people socialized in Canaan. And wise disciples realize they need kingdom socializing to remain successful. Look, we get together not just for the singing and the speaking or the preaching. We don't get together just for the spirit and for the mind. We get together for the social encouragement and increase in value. We, we participate to engage others, to connect with others, and to grow with and among others. Humans need social connections. Disciples need kingdom connections. If I'm going to enjoy the divine blessings of the ingathering, then I've got to offer social first fruits. I've got to participate in the ongoing harvest. Uh, let me just share this. While we're connected to the people around us, there's danger in being overly connected to folks that are faithful to someone other than Jesus. If you look in the book of Numbers, Balaam was a prophet of Israel. And he ended up being killed in a war that was God's judgment over Midian. Because Balaam was still living in Midian. Midian's king had invited him, come and prophesy for me against the children of Israel. And Balaam said, I, I can only prophesy what God gives me. And, and Balaam went there and he never did prophesy in Midian's favor. He always prophesied in the favor of Israel. And, and when the day was done and the deed was over, Balaam should have gone back home to Israel. Why was he maintaining this ongoing social depth and connection with Midian? And in the end, it cost him his life. And why socialize with those hardened toward God? Proverbs 13, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. Amos 3, Can two people walk together without agreeing on the direction. And you start hanging out with who you're hanging out with, you're going to start headed that direction and thinking those thoughts and adopting those values. And if that person is someone who's not following Christ, I'm, I'm so close with this companion, someone who is hardened against God, well, that's a dangerous place. On this subject, preacher Clovis Chappelle wrote, what power there is in an atmosphere. I do not think that we have ever appreciated its real might. You can live in a wrong atmosphere till your taste for things of the Spirit is in a larger measure lost. You can live in a wrong atmosphere till the heavenly manna becomes insipid and nauseating thing. You can live in a wrong atmosphere till your moral sense is blunted, till you lose your capacity to be shocked. 
You can dwell there till the most hideous and disgusting vice seems altogether normal and natural and a thing to be desired. To enjoy the blessings of kingdom relationships, you and I need to be careful. We need to invest our first social fruits in kingdom relationships. Furthermore, others need our social interest and investment as well. One final statement, or rather one final section. 1 John 3.10, Now we can tell who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Anyone who does not live righteously and does not love other believers does not belong to God. This is the message you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Of course, our society believes that's merely an emotion. But down a few verses in verse 16, we know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. Down to verse 18, dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth, so we will be confident when we stand before God. God is love. We're his children. We must also walk in love. In fact, John says if we don't love one another, we really don't know God, regardless of what we say. And love's more than just word. It's actions. It's giving. It's not just getting. It's unconditional in its nature. Christ's love fulfilled those qualities, and so should ours. Here's a challenging question. So, so what do my spiritual, social connections tell me about my love of God? If that, according to John, is a measure, what's that telling me? First fruits... In social settings are important for fellow followers. Let me toss this out. Let's, let's think again about our connections with non-disciples. And, and though we shouldn't be overly engaged with the hard-hearted and those uh, openly contrary and unwilling to hear the word of God, we also live in this world. We engage as Jesus engaged with all communities. And so that being the case, I wonder, where does meeting new people, particularly non-disciples, where does that fit into our first things list? How often are we meeting new people? How intentional are we about it? Now, I'm going to float really probably the most difficult question of the whole day. And if every disciple in this congregation succumbs gives in to the Seattle freeze. What happens to the kingdom of God in our workplace and in our neighborhood? Think about your various relationships and the, the social energy you're expending on them. Does our social increase for the work of God get our first Fruits. Do we offer Jesus, his work, his people, the efforts of his kingdom, our social best?
because our first fruits are important for those who yet to know Jesus. And finally, our social increase matters because there is an ingathering that is promised. There is a promised ingathering. That when I give that portion, not, not all of my social energy, not every drip of social energy, but the first element, the first portion, and the best portion to kingdom engagement of my social energy. The Bible and experience prove repeatedly that there are rich relationships, harvests that we enjoy because we practice those first fruits. These ingassings are determined by our engagements. We reap what we sow. The Lord blesses what we invest. And when the work of God gets our first portion, the best portion of our social increase, we are promised divine ingathering blessings. Would you stand with me? I'm going to pray over us as a congregation and ask the Lord to solidify some things in our mind and in our spirit. You can pray along with me as you desire if you would bow your head, close your eyes if that helps you, but consider and think about the challenge of God's word today. Lord, we began by confessing our interest to be focused and receptive and responsive. In fact, Lord, we invited that your spirit would inspire and empower us not only to learn your ways, but to live faith daily. Lord, in the days ahead, help me to be thankful day in and day out for your deliverance. I'm thankful, Lord, for your inheritance and what you've provided. Lord, I'm, I'm thankful for the promise of ingathering blessing. And indeed, they arrive in our lives again and again as we follow your festival progression. And Lord, if these feasts teach us anything, it's that our participation is expected. But we invest. You bless what we invest. So, Lord, I ask you to challenge me. If necessary, provoke me. Remind me, Lord, many times, often this week, to participate. Remind me to offer to you and to your word my first fruits, to return to you my social first and my social best. And I pray, Lord, that as we walk through these weeks of this first things series, talk to my mind, talk to my heart. Help me, Lord, to appreciate progression in Canaan. Help me to evaluate, Lord, where I am living. While in Canaan am I thinking like an Egyptian. And in every way that happens, I pray that you would lovingly remind me and lovingly point me in the right direction. 
is, Lord, I want all aspects of your divine development in my life. Lord, I come to you desiring the full package that the fullness of your understanding and development would be realized in me. Lord, I know it doesn't happen overnight, but I want to be in that constant process and progress moving closer to who and what you would desire for me to be. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Can you say, in Jesus' name? In Jesus' name. You've been listening to the Living Faith Everett podcast series. Tune in next week for the next part of this series, or join us online at livingfaithministries.church.